Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Usman Sheikh. Usman is the CEO of XIQ. We're going to be looking at what's real, what's the controversy all about around AI. To my mind, I think there's a lot of the usual panic when we come across something that we don't understand, that's new, unusual, promises all sorts of things, and there's a lot of hype. To my mind, it's a very powerful tool used well. It's a very powerful self-harming tool used badly. Because there's the uncertainty, we're going to spend some time defining some of the terminology. I think it's important that people understand what we're talking about. Um, And then we're going to look at things like behavioral science, psychometrics, psychology, and how we can use AI in order to help us better understand ourselves our people, our customers, our partners, and find ways to build bridges. For me, that's been one of the most incredible experiences of the last 10 months. Since I've been playing with this stuff and immersing myself in it, I've realized just how much I didn't know and how much is out there at my fingertips. And if I choose to work out how I can cooperate with people, it's just a gift. However, We also have the flip side, which is people using an incredible uh, weapon very badly and indiscriminately. And the knock-on effect is it's created this furore, this panic, and a lot of people saying, oh, this stuff doesn't work, or is it going to replace me? So these are the topics that we're going to talk about. So without any further ado, Usman, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I I am very curious. Would you mind telling us a couple of minutes on your history, how you got here and how you ended up in the space as well? Because, I mean, that must have been a fascinating journey. It is indeed. And uh, it is quite a meandering journey to how I got to where I am. So my education in university many, many decades ago is that of an architect. So I'm a design thinker. I have designed buildings. I have thought about Hence the black polar neck as well. Hence the black turtleneck, exactly (laughs) correct. (laughs) You can take the the boy out of the architect, but you can't take the architect out of the boy. There you go. There you go. (laughs) And so I've always been really enamored by design. And I also think that, you know, the way you go about design is is the same way you should go about solving business problems as well. Because you've got oh, to yes. establish empathy, you've got to have a vision, you've got to be able to put in stakes into the ground to actually think about what the future is and how you build towards the future. And what so the job started, to be done is. Yeah, what, exactly. what the hell are you trying to accomplish? Why am I building this product? Am I creating a product that no one's ever going to buy? There you go. Exactly correct. So I started as an architect, first 10 years as an architect. Um, I got a little bit... Um, disenchanted by the field because I thought it was a little slow moving. I moved into, um, um, you know, set up my own company, which was more of, you know, this is just at the turn of when internet was coming out and I started designing some websites and, you know, kind of looking at how the internet could influence business outcomes. And, you know, it was very, very basic stuff back in the uh, middle or late 90s where we were, you know, introducing a form on an internet website was a big deal. Right. And uh, it was considered to be a major innovation at that stage. (laughs) (laughs) And it just kind of kept going from there. Eventually got into, uh, was hired by SAP, the world's largest B2B software company. 
And with them, I had a, a, a whirlwind tour of going, you know, all over Asia Pacific first for about three years. Then I moved to Germany and, you know, headed product management for one of their products. Really saw how enterprise class software was actually developed, how to interface with people that were providing inputs into the design and development of a large enterprise class software platform. And then last, they moved me to the Silicon Valley in the United States, where I was responsible for building a digital demand generation platform. It was like a marketplace. And um, to kind of simplify what it was, it was like an app store for B2B solutions. It was was the partner marketplace. It was a partner marketplace. Exactly correct and exactly right. But the decision-making process in selecting a business-to-business solution is very different from going and downloading an app to put on your on your iPhone. There's a lot of consideration. The, the, the dollar price is significantly higher. The risk factors are greater. You have to take into consideration that it has to integrate with heterogeneous landscape of products. And you have to evolve and build on top of it. Taking all that into consideration, and I think my background as an architect came in very handy because there were a lot of different considerations that had to be pulled together into creating a marketplace. We launched that. And hence the idea of my current venture, which is called XIQ, which stands for Multiply Your Intelligence, was launched as a AI-based platform for next generation sellers and marketers. And that's where I am. I now had that company based out of Silicon Valley, and uh, we're on a journey to kind of build the next generation platform. Fascinating. So tell me this, how has the range of experience you've had, both in terms of geography, the international, multicultural, but also the different roles, the architect, the product management, the leadership roles, the setting your own business up, raising funding, how has that range helped you with understanding how to apply AI? Because that's a lot of dots to connect. And I'm guessing that must have an impact on how you think and how you visualize, how you perceive the potential. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I think I'm extremely fortunate and unique in this regard that I had the opportunity to travel and work in many different companies across cultural boundaries with different type of people, both at an intellectual level as well as at a cultural level. The first thing it did is it opened my mind to the fact that what was the art of possible? It also opened my fa- mind to the fact that people are very similar in a lot of ways. To find common ground and actually help communicate to them or live harmoniously with them is actually not that difficult. I think there's a lot of negative forces at work and there's a lot of traditional stereotypes at work that help us get, you know, kind of break away from kind of looking at how we could work together. But actually, when you start talking to people, there's a lot of commonality between people from anywhere in the world, whether you're talking from, and, and we don't focus on that. And so for me, to answer your question about connecting the dots, that's really the intercultural global communication bit and being able to understand what people were trying to say and communicate and their ideas was extremely helpful because it helped me understand what is that common ground that we should be actually building towards developing. It also helped me understand that people are 
traditionally caught up in knowing only what they know. And so how do you take them from what you know to what is possible and where you could be? And I think that's where my architectural background again comes in, you know, the ability to help create a vision and communicate that vision and what could be the benefit of that vision and help them visualize that vision is really, really important. Okay, so let me ask you this. For salespeople who are listening and their managers who should be coaching them, how do you do that in such a way? Because when you already know the answer, you're already 12 steps ahead. And the danger is, and we see this happen all the time, where the rep starts talking about the stuff that they need to talk about right at the end. But because that's the stuff they think is clever and important, they talk about it too early. And the net result is people are confused and they switch off and they waste vast amounts of the company's money and resource, killing perfectly viable deals and driving them into the arms of the competition. If you're listening, be absolutely clear. If you talk about your product early in the sales cycle, if your intent coming into the sale is to close the meeting, close the sale, get the commission, make President's Club, you're coming with selfish intent. I warn you now, you are not clever enough, no matter how clever you think you are or how entitled you are, you are not clever enough to beat everyone's limbic system, which hasn't really changed for the last quarter of a million years and has been has three billion years of life programming into it. Don't be so bloody arrogant as to think you can. Use that system to your advantage by enlisting it and not frightening it into panicking because you're triggering any uncertainty at all causes the brain to default to the worst case scenario. Remember that. Now, Osman, I'd love your take on that. Yeah, so fully agree. So I think one of the common philosophies in selling and marketing is to create the FUD factor, the fear, uncertainty, and doom scenarios. Yeah, And I think those are very, very counterproductive because we are living at a time probably in, in, in human history, which is, has the greatest appreciation and belief in the possibilities in the future of what can be done, right? We've pretty much in the last 10, 20 years, changed the paradigms entirely, right? Across the board, in terms of computing, in terms of intelligence now, right? In terms of us being able to analyze, not us, but tools that can help us analyze data. So art of the possible is really, really big. So I think two things that, you know, that sellers need to take into consideration is that now is the time to help your prospects understand what does the future hold for them? How can they really gain? Don't look at, again, that fear factor, right? Don't start, don't start selling fear. Hey, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job or your company is going to go bust, right? I think the idea is like, where do you go from here? What is the art of the possible? How much net new value can you really create? And I think that's really where where the opportunity lies because I, and and in order to do that we need to understand two things we need to be able to do research to understand what is the possible don't just start making things up but really you know base them in reality and two how do you com- communicate to the different people that are you know that want to be communicated to in different styles right some people want 
the three bullet pers- bullet version. Some people want to be the ones that can take what you tell them and and magnify it to their people so that to their audiences so that they look like influencers and very knowledgeable people. Others are very skeptical. They want to analyze and they want to query, is this really true? Are those facts correct? Who wrote down those facts? And then there are those that are just data, they, you know, they like to suck up a lot of data. And knowing and differentiating who you're talking to and then having you know, done some qualified uh, qualification in terms of what you're talking about are two very, very important. And stay away from that fear and uncertainty. It's yesterday's news and it's becoming obsolete extremely fast. Well, not only that, the neuroscience tells us that if we put the buyer under pressure, it triggers the disgust and contempt response from their insula. And we're institutionalizing that into the playbook. We put our sellers under pressure. And when we put them under the kind of pressure that we typically see in sales organizations where their survival is threatened, their livelihood is threatened, where they feel insecure, their prefrontal cortex switches off. The one thing we really, really need our salespeople to have switched on so that they're not reacting and giving away margin, that they're not saying things they shouldn't. They're not like a rabbit in the headlights, paralyzed when they're under pressure. Because the problem is that almost every training program is a waste of money. Because until the person actually applies the new behavior in the field in front of the customer and it improves their performance, it has failed. And Training people to remember the stuff and complete a program is not the same as them appropriating that skill and turning it into something that they use permanently. Yeah. I mean, and and again, you know, it's quantity versus quality. That pressure that sales leaders are creating on their salespeople, and as a result, there's a lot of garbage that's going out, is that they are forcing them to go out and do things in terms of volume. Our mindset, our, our go-to-market strategies are driven around volume now. And it, it, we, are, we, we, have, we have weird away from volume. We are, again, entering. We now have the tool sets to really do quality versus quantity. And we can do quality at a very cheaper, at a very cheap clip versus investing a lot of time, a lot of money, doing a lot of research, we now have the answers coming to us. So, you know, a lot of fear, uh, Marcus, that is now being created around generative AI that you're going to get a lot of spam. I think, yes, in the hands of the wrong people, you are going to get a lot of spam. But that's not how it's meant to work. The way we are, for example, applying it is that we do the research factor, which every seller should do prior yeah. to entering into a game is very important. But the time to do that has, and the, and the quality of the output has improved a lot. The time has reduced, the quality has improved. Use that to really secure a relationship. I didn't say a lead. I didn't say a, a deal. I said a relationship. And when you build that relationship, you don't need to have, you know, 100 relationships to get one out. You need to have you know, maybe five to get one out. So you don't need to go into that volume, into the volume place. And by the way, if you're really applying the the quality aspect, 
what you're doing is the other four that are not currently in your pipe are are being nurtured. They, you're getting ahead of their their learning cycle because, as we know, buyers are spending more time doing research and less time with sellers because, again, it's that the FUD factor that the sellers are bringing in that I think is is keeping the buyer away from talking to the sellers. They don't get any value. They don't learn any new ideas. And they they shut down, right? There was that piece of research that came out about four or five years ago, which was that about 57% of B2B buyers would prefer to have a seller-free buying experience. Absolutely correct. Now, that is a damning indictment on us as a profession because it should be the most noble act we perform, bar none. Our job is not to sell. Our job is to help the buyer facilitate the right decision for them, for now and the future, whether it ultimately involves us or not. And our job is to create the conditions where they feel safe having us beside them on that journey and where we have enough intimacy and trust where we can be honest with one another. And if we realize that it's not for us, it doesn't mean that we burn bridges. We're respectful about it and they respect our time. And we're there to serve. We're there to help. It's not about servitude, but our business as a seller exists because of the customer, not in spite of them. So we need to start thinking as the customer not about them or about what we can do to them, about what we can get from them. Our sale is a symptom of helping the buyer get the outcome they intended because they're renting that from us. They're not buying anything from us outright, ever. Well, maybe a gravestone. Yeah, I'll tell you, you, you bring up a really interesting point. So the car buying experience is an extremely painful experience. Right. And I I dread going to the car dealer to look at the car, to spend literally a whole day with this guy that I have no desire to be with, you know, answering very, very moronic questions. And, you know, it's kind of demeaning, actually, when you go into you're, you're the one who's spending the money and you're feeling really belittled at the end of the experience. But recently, and I think there's a lot to be learned, I ended up buying an electronic vehicle and the whole process was seller-free. It was very autonomous. I could go in. I literally met the person for five minutes. And I said, look, I want to try a car. They said, go out to the parking lot. In that you know, parking lot, this is where the car is parked. Take it. You have two hours to drive it. We're not going to send a driver with you or a, a car dealer with you to go with you. Test it out on your own. Come back. Tell us what you think. And then here's a website, which is where you can go and order the car. And it was such a pleasurable experience. And there are two lessons to be learned out of this. So one, just out of curiosity, how much did you spend online on that transaction? Close to fifty thousand dollars. Fifty right? grand online yeah. on and on, how many touches did they have to give you? The human touches were no more than two to three touches. Okay. Right? Cost of sale next to nothing. Nothing, right? And I tell you what. Here's the thing. I ended up buying three of those cars. So it actually ended up spending $150,000, not for myself, but my wife bought one. My son ended up buying it because the experience was so good, right? It was it was this kind of pleasurable, really enjoyable experience 
And, I, and the only time, maybe first time I had to go talk to them was just to validate, am I doing this correctly or not? And they were very nice. They didn't try to do a hard sell. They didn't negotiate. There was, you know, it was all very, very open. As a matter of fact, all these tools that could help me lower my price point were already built into, into that, into that online buying experience. Right. So that's one. The second thing I want to point out is that, uh, and I don't want to name the company and so on, unless you, you know, but the, the point I wanted to make was that it's an EV. It's a new paradigm. It's a new paradigm on how we drive. And these companies have gone that extra mile to start think of the buying experience and the customer experience as well. Apply that to our traditional B2B experience and why I think it's become stale and it's broken. Think about it for a second, Marcus. We pass the customer in a, in a B2B experience through about five to six different individuals. You have the marketing people writing out content and sending it to them. This is at the very top demand generation. And by the way, maybe a very futile exercise in the first place, because as we now know, buyers are spending a lot more time doing their own, own research. So if we need to get mind share with those buyers earlier on in their decision-making cycle, it's not through marketing material. It's by being thought leaders. It's by publishing content and really coming up with that innovation and being somewhat of futurists where we're talking about the art of possible, right? So, so, so that's one thing. So, so first it's the marketeer. From the marketeer, it goes to the sales development representative, the SDR. From the SDR, it goes to the account executive. From the account executive, it goes to the VP of sales. From the VP of sale, it goes to the procurement person and then the legal person and then the IT person and so on, you know, that, that need to actually talk to them. So we are doing, we're doing a lot of injustice. We're not streamlining the customer's experience. We're interjecting what's easy for us. Hey, is this person really qualified, right? So let's send the SDR to qualify them. They do their qualification and they send me the notes. I never read the notes. So I go through customer steps into my arena as an account executive and I start qualifying them all over again, right? And we demean that person. We don't add value to that equation. And hence, there's a huge dropout rate. 84% of B2B deals today do not work. They don't come, you know, they don't close because Either the buyer and the seller have not been able to align or the experience for the buyer usually has been so ugly and so difficult that they don't want to spend time buying with you. They go to wherever it's a little bit easier, less frictionless. So the paradigms have shifted. We need to read, lay down the railway lines so that the bullet trains can actually run on this versus the old steam engines that were running. Many of you who've listened to the podcast for the last few years will have heard this story before, but it bears repeating. In the 1970s or thereabouts, there was a time and motion study conducted by the Royal Artillery, and a captain had to go in with his clipboard and stopwatch, and he was watching these gunners firing guns. And two of them would walk to the back of the gun one of them would open the back, they'd shove the shell in the breech, they'd close it. Then one of them would turn and stand uh, with his back to the muzzle and facing backwards and stand to attention. The other one would march eight paces 
turn around, stand to attention, and raise up his left arm and nod. And when he nodded, the other guy would fire the, uh, pull the cord. Anyway, he asked them, why do you do it that way? And says, that's the way we're trained to fire the guns in this man's army, sir. And that's why we fire the guns in this, the way we fire the guns in this man's army, sir. Who trained you, the gunnery sergeant, Gunny? Why did you train them this way? That's the way I was trained to train them, sir. That's the way we train them in this man's army, sir. That's the way we fire the guns in this man's army, sir. So anyway, long story short, couldn't work out what the hell was going on. He was in the pub outside Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain, and there was an old duffer who was a veteran from World War I. And he says, you a gunner. Any idea what the hell's going on here? Oh, yeah, they're holding the horses. Now, bear in mind, this was the 1970s, and World War I was probably the last time they act. I mean, the Polish charged the uh, panzers uh, with cavalry, but that was a short-lived and uh, a one-off, I think. But you know, World War I was the last time anyone in the British Army was using them. And 50 years later, they were still using the same process. How many of your processes are still there because you haven't bothered to look at them? One of my favorite exercises, which always sends people into an absolute tailspin, is any system that fails to deliver the intended outcome one in five times or worse, i.e. they only have a 20% win rate, that goes onto your Amber Alert list. And within three months, there has to be a 25% improvement. Anything that has a uh, one in 10 failure rate, 10%, that goes onto your red list. And within a month, that has to be improved by 50%. And then my favorite is the blacklist. And that is anything with a one in 20 failure rate, which is almost every motion in sales, marketing, management, and recruitment. And it's one in 20 or worse. You stop doing it. You cancel the contract. You stop spending money on it. And you fix it. Because why would you choose to spend 95% of your effort on wasted cost generative administration? But well, people aren't asking the right questions. Yeah. And it's also this, um, Marcus, this, this kind of hesitation to adopt proven solutions and accept the fact that there is something that's better out there. And, you know, again, I'll give you a military example as well. So scurvy, you know, which is very common or what used to be common amongst sailors, a very simple fix was to add lemon into the grog that they were drinking, right? And that would solve them. It took them a hundred years and countless number of sailors that perished as a result of them for that simple solution to be adopted across. And once it did, the Royal Navy became a very powerful force and eventually pretty much conquered the whole world, right? And, and colonialized the whole world as a result of that. And so it's the adoption of innovation that is also very important. And we're living in a time when the paradigm has shifted and we need to really start thinking about what we've been doing, what we've been investing in the past, the fragmented sales landscape, how we sell the number of people, the roles that we've kind of, we pass the buyer through and the technology that we, the fragmented technology that we offer to the seller. You know, they're using on average 12 to 16 different solutions. An average seller is spending less than 28% of their time in actual sales-related activities. Right? And how much of that time is spent actually in front of the customer? Less than 
Okay. So I think the challenge here, uh, Osman, is that we're looking at the wrong end of the problem. What if we don't create any of that noise, any of that friction, any of that work in the first place? What if we started with the customer's intended outcome and worked backwards from that, and we mapped our journey to align with them achieving that outcome? Funnily enough, when you do, you get a lot less resistance, almost no objections and pushback. And because you're working towards common purpose, they see you as an ally instead of an adversary or an accomplice. And the challenge is exactly what you said. We have to shift our thinking from this short-term volume play and the idiocy of just making that worse. So let, let me illustrate it with real life. A great marketing campaign would have a 3% click-through rate and a 15% conversion rate. And the marketing director would be over the moon, the agency would be over the moon, and the board would be ecstatic. But what that means is they failed to generate the intended revenue 99.9955% of the time. If you were delivering that kind of outcome in health and safety or finance, you would literally be behind bars. Your Honor, 99.9955% of my staff were injured, maimed, or killed, but it is in line with industry standards. And then you throw all of those shitty leads over the fence to sales, the ones that weren't closed, that you couldn't get hold of, that didn't respond, that were just on a fishing trip. And sales has to follow up on average six to 11 times for an inbound, a warm inbound, and 33 to 46 times for a cold outbound. But where do we put all of our emphasis? It's on the cold market, cold direct new business, which is the least profitable, and where you have a 3% win rate on average. Whereas the hot market, where you sell via people who are known to both sides, has a 64 to 81% conversion rate. And it takes about a third to a quarter of the time and a fraction of the cost. And the chances of expansion business, instead of 18%, 1,150%, according to a 2019 SAS bank survey. So that's in the SAS space. But where do they all fixate their attention? Top of the funnel, cold new business. But what you are suggesting is focus on that medium-term funnel, go deep and wide, multi-thread, have lots of relationships, and don't sell when they're passively looking. So that you're bringing value, you're timely, relevant, and you have time to become intimate and share confidences. And you've constantly demonstrated low self-orientation because you understand that your commission is a byproduct of your customer getting the outcome that they're paying you for. Yeah. Is that a fair summary of where you're at? Yes, I think that is absolutely correct. Let me just add to that, that the number of sheer number of possibilities of what we can do today and the rate of innovation. And let me talk about that. Specifically, I'm talking about generative AI and AI in general. Generative AI is has created tons of opportunities, more opportunities than the imagination of your prospective buyers for them to be able to understand how they're going to internalize and use those, right? So on, um, I think on Monday, OpenAI had their developer conference, right? And in that developer conference, they showed a whole different set of ways on how 
uh, chat GPT and its new iterations could be potentially utilized from healthcare to children's education to different ways of programming and so on. And so in terms of building that relationship, as you were saying, don't start selling when they're not, actually nobody's in the buying mood. If you really want to sell, you have to create the need and the understanding. And that's where marketeers and sellers are falling flat. They're investing a lot of time in doing that cold calling and outreach. I have a widget to sell to you. Instead of, look, this is where your business could be today. What are the possibilities? What are the net new opportunities for you? Have you thought about those? Let's start spending time in helping them understand these options. They're not qualified, first of all. They don't know the technology. It's our role to educate them. Once we start educating them and saying, hey, this is possible and this is how you could do it, then there's an interest that's actually a meaningful interest that's really created. And they will come to you with the idea. Second is the velocity of innovation. Here's an interesting thing. You know, I was recently writing, I used to, I write the product specs for my platform, right? And it used to take six to eight weeks for me and my product managers to come together to think through, do the research, you know, write down the specs, visit them, do the flow charts, come back and kind of reanalyze this and, and then eventually convert them into a functional requirement document, then an engineering requirement document, and then build a product, right? Marcus, I was actually able to do this whole process, believe it or not, in two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? I shrunk that eight-week cycle to two and a half hours. How many people over the, that eight weeks? That was at least three to four people just invested in that. And now we're talking one person's two and a half hours to be able to do that. I had better quality of research. I had better proof points. I had better written documentation. I could validate things with, you know, cross-reference them. All of that in two and a half hours. And now this shrinking those eight weeks out, taking those out of the cycle, my development timeline has gone up. And since my quality of my spec is better, the outcome, meaning that what they produce is going to have a lot less bugs. It's going to be a lot more bug-free. And therefore, for me to be able to release a better quality product to the market is going to be that much faster and and better. And And that is changing the game. But not only that, this is where you need to really stop thinking it's either or. It's and. Our generation is Gen Xers. Well, my generation is Gen Xers. You look far too young to be one. The reality is that we could be the bridge because we're analog natives. The generations that followed are to a greater degree or completely digital natives. And their understanding of what is possible is colored by their experience of the world that they live in online, which is very different from ours. You know, for me, the, the internet is basically LinkedIn, um, YouTube, Zoom, and email, and uh, typing. But for these people, it's an entire world. You know, they, 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 they have this uh, second life online. And gender, for example, the fluidity of gender 
is anathema for many people my generation. They struggle with it because it's so confusing. But whether you like it or not, it is what it is. And we have to, we can fight against it or we can work with it. And this is where the, the AI has been incredibly helpful for me because as a thought partner, it is magnificent if you ask it the right questions. If you ask it crappy questions, it'll go off and find you the drudge that was the 11% of the internet when ChatGPT was launched. Okay? The internet has grown so much since September 2019 or whenever it was, uh, whenever it was released. 2022, uh, last year. 22, yeah. So one, a less year than ago. a year old. Yeah, yeah. it's less so than a year old. The internet, the volume of stuff on the internet has increased ninefold since then. At its release at the beginning of the year, that was. So it's even more now. Because ChatGPT, actually, the fact that it isn't up to date, I would be using other technologies like Claude. Very, very powerful. Anthropic's really impressive there. Bard has its moments. It's not brilliant. Llama, yeah, still uh, um, jury out on that one. But it's really interesting. If you play with the same query in the different language models, you get some very different responses. Some of them are very predictable. ChatGPT language model seems to spit out language that sounds like all the stuff you're being spammed with. So what I'm fascinated by is how you're using it as your thought partner, as a creative partner in order to help you be better as a CEO, not just for the technical, but as a human being, as a manager of human being. Yeah, it's a great point. So I, I think the limitation in terms of the currency of news and information is, is a big factor. One of the things, when we looked at chat GPT versus perhaps a, a large percentage of people, other people, we looked at it as a tool. And as a tool, it had different capabilities that could be stripped out and things could be added in. So from the very first go, it wasn't a, hey, this is the be-all and end-all. It's, it's, a, it's a vehicle that's going to help us. We can pull things out of there. So the, we really like the large language model. We didn't consider it to be an excellent research tool. Yeah, if I wanted to do summary on Macbeth and understand Aristotle and so on, good stuff. I could go there and get a very quick summary done on that. But in terms of what I needed to do for my own work, it wasn't really, really helpful for me. So what we did is we, we stripped out the large language model, and now they give you the API to do that. And we infused in that our own psychometric generation capabilities, the ability to analyze. And by doing that, we immediately gave it a much more human-flavored language capability, right? A much more intimate, you know, so it would speak to you because you were a particular personality type and with a particular communication style, using words and vocabulary that would be much more suitable to you and, you know, length of um, of communication that would be much more suitable to you uh, than it would be to another person who was a different person. Mm -hmm. Second thing that we did is we took our own curated, XIQ's own curated business corpus and we added that in there. And that's current. That's up to the minute by doing so. And the third thing we've done, which they, they kind of interestingly talked about in their developer conference as well, was we created this thing called the Document Hub, or the ability for the customer to load up their own content in there. Mm -hmm. So now, if you think at it, 
We have the large language model from ChatGPT. We have the personalization and the humanization capabilities from our, our psychometric analysis capability. We have the business lingua franca up to date and the analysis of financials, of news, of what people are saying, the sentiment with which those people are speaking from our business corpus. And then we let the customer infuse their own content in there. That creates a really new novel mix that we can now use to communicate and write new things. So that's really what's coming in help, helpful. And, you know, I know you talk about blind spots and the blind spots that were there prior to my understanding and you know, of being able to do that was, oh, you know what? It can't really do this. It was There was a lot of like, it cannot do this. It can't do this. It can't do this. And every day when we take this new formulation of this new structure of how we're using this large language model to query these different databases, we are pleasantly impressed with what it can do. So just, you know, taking this thing about like, hey, you know, two months ago, our recommendation was identify the pain points of a customer and identify how my solutions could actually help them solve their pain points. And then somebody really wise came and said, you know what, the people you're selling to, they're not being hired or paid to put band-aids on broken solutions they have in place. They're being hired to build the next level, the next generation. So instead of talking about their pain points, start talking about the future, start talking about the opportunities. What can be done? Went to our, our tool set. Our chatbot is called Gilroy. We asked Gilroy, hey, Gilroy, give me the opportunities that this, this company has. The other thing that, that was very interesting was give me the opportunities that this what Marcus had. What are the unique opportunities for Marcus to progress in their career, in his career, right? Yeah. That's really, really important. Now I'm starting to slice close to the bone because it's that motivation that propels you to do something in your company. It's not the executive directive that has come down to me. Absolutely. At the end, that directive dissipates when it hits me right here. And it's not till it's marrying in with my personal motivation that I can see my way forward. What's in it for me that something really starts coming to life. This is a big realization that I want to bring to your audience. The guys, today you have the tool sets and you have the ability to actually understand what motivates your prospect and start talking in a language that you can communicate to them. I'd, I'd go even further. Um, one, one of the things that we've been uh, doing, which has been quite a lot of fun, has been using it as a research tool for people who want to headhunt their next boss or who are trying to get in front of people who are impossible to get hold of. So we're using it to, first of all, capture whatever they've said in public, because you can track their sentiment, their emotion, their language patterns over time. Analyst calls, if they're public company, are a godsend. And you want to listen to the analyst call for when the CEO or the CFO stumbles, and you timestamp that point, because that's normally an in, a good indicator. And you track that stuff over a year or two, and you start to see their sentiment change over time. You see how they respond under pressure. You get their language patterns. 
the beauty of doing that is you can also start working out who they are already connected to and get referred in through those trusted third parties. You got give yourself time if you focus on the medium-term pipeline. Where my clients have been doing this over the last several years, they're routinely 140 to 220% of quota consistently month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year. Now, the only way you can get there is by creating the right foundation. So let's talk about that. How do you experiment with this uh, technology in a way that isn't just a rabbit hole? Because God knows I've wasted hundreds of hours experimenting. So what would, advice would you give to someone who's a bit nervous about dipping their toe? It would be a really good practical use of the technology. Great question. So one of the things that we have um, created is set of prompt library. So the prompt libraries could be, I want to just understand. I want to decipher this person. Literally, we don't use the word decipher in, in the prompt library, but I just want to get insights on who the person is. I want to understand this company. I want to write to this person. I want to write a social media post to this person. I want to write a press release, right? Different things. So for each one of these, what we've done is we've started to provide these quote-unquote guided procedures, right? Best practices, if you may, right? So what it does is for those people that don't have time and they don't want to really play around and toy around, we've given them a set of things that, you know, in your daily routine, you could still improve everything you do in terms of getting to understand your person, uh, the, the, your prospect, and engage with them using these prompt libraries. But... If you want to push, but there's nothing stopping them from pushing the bar further, right? Like I told you, uh, for example, we were focused too much on identify the pain point and solve the problem. And we've now kind of literally in the last two to three weeks, we've shifted from that to identify the opportunity and show them the way forward. That's just a totally different realization. Second to your point about identifying who they're connected to. We did a big demo yesterday. The day before that, my team and I were sitting together and we were like, we want to make this really, really realistic because people tend to have limited imagination when it comes to watching demos. And so we went and we identified who could be the people that we could showcase as prospects for the person, the subject we were demoing to. And, and we identified a couple of people when we went in front of who we were doing the demo with and we showed them, hey, this is who you could be potentially selling, light bulbs just started going off right there and then because they were like, I know this person. I speak to mm -hmm. this person. That is exactly who it is. Yeah. Our credibility level just went up significantly because now we are speaking a language. We're talking to them about their problem. We're not selling anything at all. We're saying, this is how you could do it. Then they're connecting the dots internally. Hey, it's not that difficult. I can do it. I need that. If you think about the potential as a self-development tool, one of my favorite things is to have it, I ask it, what am I missing? So I'm trying to put a proposition together. What am I missing? And it comes up with lists that are depressingly long. And I think, oh, yeah, okay. And I improve it. And then I create a board that is made up of some 
personality types with drivers in the context that my prospects are going to be in. And then I have them pick my proposition apart. I want to have that fight before I go in. I don't want to have that fight in front of the customer. What I want is a frictionless experience for the customer so that they have no reason to object. And any objections that they do have, I raise at my time of choosing. The beauty of doing this is that on cold, you can get a 30% plus close rate. And that's just on cold if you're daft enough to go cold. But why would you? So this really fascinates me. The technology has been greeted with the same fury and fear that mobile phones and faxes did, the plow and probably the wheel. The grim reality is human beings tend to react poorly to things that they don't understand and they're uncertain about. What are we certain about with this technology? And as a board, how can boards and C-suites use it and be exemplars of how to use it well so that you're capitalizing on freeing people up from low-value activity and releasing them to do high-value, more meaningful work? So I think one thing that we can be certain of is we're not going back, right? So we're only going to go forward. Two, that this is a really, really good tool to do a lot of the heavy lifting that needs to be done to really bring back some of those best practices that ought to be done, but that are difficult to do, time-consuming, and require certain skills that majority of us don't possess or don't have the time to do so. The boards should start really thinking about quality. What does it take to deliver that quality? And then how do these tools help us accelerate, reduce the time while improving the quality? Example in sales, every seller should know or conduct a SWOT analysis, strength, weakness, opportunity, threat analysis, right? That's just basic fundamentals in terms of knowing who your customer is and being able to get that done. However, to your point, 99.55% of the sellers, either they don't know how to do it, don't have time to do it, or have teams that do it for them. And by the time that comes to them, it's already obsolete information. And and also, it's fairly uh, rigorous. I need to spend time reading it, which I don't have anyway. So forget it, right? So our platform, for example, will give you out of the box a month-old SWOT analysis. Every month it gets refreshed. It's up to date. It tells you what the strength, weakness, opportunity, threats are. And it can be incorporated by Gilroy in writing a response for you, right? So the best practice is now being brought into a daily practice. It, it, it is part of what is. And so imagine the quality that it can improve. Second is that as sellers, we have been trained, coached. And I don't know how successfully. I don't want to fear in suggesting how successfully we've been trained and coached in identifying who the person is that's sitting across the table from you. And, you know, you've heard about methodologies like challenger methodology and so on. And people come in and there's coaches for challenger and they train sales teams. And, you know, the moment they're in the room, everybody knows who's a challenger, who's a mobilizer, who's this, who's that. They all forget to use it when they're in front of the customer. Right. And But the moment that that coach walks out, the domain expertise also walks out. It's not retained. So. The idea is right, 
but it's not sustainable. It's not codified. It's not 24-7 available to us where I can do a reference point into some kind of a scientific data point where I can leverage that and say, well, this is what it is, right? Today, just the example I was citing to you earlier, I can go in and I can say, okay, what is the personal motivation of Marcus and how I can get them to move? And therein is another quality piece that I've added into the equation of my sales outreach or my sales engagement lifecycle that was not there before. So I've now shown you just two tools, and there's many, many more that can just help us up the game of selling by using tools like AI, not in, in, in terms of fair factors, but in terms of how we harness them to help us, right? Get better. Don't spam. I have a paradox for you. How do we, in a world that is crying out for authenticity, use these technologies in order to allow us to turn up, be present, be more authentic? Quite frankly, it's a relatively easy answer. It depends on how you look at this tool. If you're just going to blindly close your eyes, shoot fire and forget, bad idea. What it's doing is, it's doing a lot of your heavy lifting. It's bringing you 90, 95% of the way there. You've still got to add your own element. Now, the point is, look, when I talk to sales leaders, what do they tell me? They say sales has become very difficult. Why? On the one hand, I have to wear a data scientist hat because there's so many data points in the sales cycle that I need to analyze. So I'm like this mathematical, analytical mindset. On the other hand, I have to suddenly switch gears and start talking to people in a very sociable manner in a way I can tell a story, I can communicate with them, right? And those transitions are not natural for everyone. They're very difficult. Now, the AI piece, what it's done is it's really helped us on both those sides in helping us bring that together with better quality information and data about the person and about what's within the, I, I wouldn't say pipeline, but what's within the sales process. And what I mean by what's within the sales process, it's news about the company. It's news about the industry. It's news about the C-level people. It's their finances. It's, You're mapping against their journey. where the, the journey, right? And so all of that is brought together. Now, I should not be in the mindset that, look, since the tool has done that, boom, I can just shoot it. I now need to take that as input. Things that would have taken me a lot of time to get to, or I wouldn't have done it and I would have winged it. And how often does that happen in sales? A lot, Darn. right? People wing it a lot and it's uh, really, really obvious, painfully obvious. To well, us. it's negligent. It's negligent. It's criminal in my opinion, to be yeah, honest. I agree. Uh, in this it, time and age, in this day and age, company. it is. It's stealing from the company. It's stealing from the customer. Um, and you have no right to turn up unprepared. Again, this is a really important shift in thinking. If you're dealing with someone at the sea level and they're responsible for a proportion of PL, if they're running 100 million PL, their time is worth $50,000 an hour. You better turn up and be prepared and deliver $50,000 worth of value, or you're not going to get invited back. And they're going to tell their friends, and then you're going to be locked out from them as well. The AI gives you the opportunity to do the research you should always have been doing, but you weren't because you are claiming that you are too time poor and you are too stretched because 
of stupid decisions in your business model that cause you to spend most of your time focused on the wrong end of the problem. If you're focusing on the cold market, you're focusing on the least effective part and the least profitable and the longest sales cycle and the highest cost with the lowest probability. And if, on the other hand, what you're doing is you're focusing on your medium-term pipeline and you have a dream list of 20 or 100 accounts and you decide that over the next two years, a dozen of those will become your customer. And if you had a dozen of those buying everything that you could possibly sell them and they derive all the value that you could possibly deliver because you're a good match, I guarantee You'll get there at the same time, but with a lot less of the hassle and the friction. And your salespeople won't be turning over at the rate they are, because I'm guessing most organizations at the moment are struggling with talent. And all of this stuff is interlinked, because what you're dealing with are wicked problems. Wicked problems are interlinked. The first things you try don't work, so you have to go back and keep experimenting. And you do this in sprints. Well, the AI allows you to turn months of work into hours. So you can do lots of sprints and you can iterate tiny changes without creating chaos. If you think it through, you can challenge yourself. You can prove yourself wrong. Because one of the things that every leader and every seller needs to practice on a daily basis is go and find people who prove you wrong. Go and find out why you're wrong. Go look for bad news because that's where the real value is. As a product developer, I bet you didn't learn a great deal from people who loved your product, but you learned a hell of a lot from people who hated it and who'd fired you or fired the product. So our challenge is to focus on the right end of the problem and use the technology appropriately as a bridge, as a partner, as a thought developer as a way of challenging ourselves and identifying our own blind spots. That, to me, is what it's gifted me so far, and I think I've only just scraped the surface. No, you're absolutely right. Here's another interesting, you know, you mentioned about the generational gap as well. The generation, so that is today, entering the market today, is already... AI indulged in AI infused been around kind of... for 30, 50 years already. It's not like I mean, we, we're using Siri every day or Alexa. exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. You bring it up. I, I like to cite Gilroy, as our, our chatbot, as the Alexa of B2B sales. You know, you get Alexa, go play me this genre music from this person. Gilroy, tell me what's happening with company XYZ this person and help me write a value proposition in terms of what are the next opportunities. It's exactly the same analogy. This in my head smacks of a great opportunity to apply this exact technology into the boardroom. Boards need to be up to date and informed. They need to be using good insight and they need to be able to make decisions quickly on relatively limited information. But by and large, they're risk averse. In this economy that we're moving into, playing it safe is the most dangerous thing you can do because you're going to be left very badly behind. If you believe that human beings have a nasty habit of repeating the mistakes of history, go and research something called the Kondratiev Wave, uh, a book called The Fourth Turning, another one called Pendulum, and The Fourth Turning is here because they are 
eerily accurate and have been eerily accurate in predicting the last 25 years. And we are now, by the looks of things, entering into eight years of grim, miserable turmoil. At the risk of being a peddler of bad news, I am an old man, so therefore I'm allowed to be curmudgeonly. But history appears to be mirroring the 1920s and 1930s, which, if any of you can remember your history, didn't end well for many people. And we're about to enter 2024, which is the US election cycle, the pantomime that is Trump and the various indictments, the UK election cycle. Taiwan will come into play. Russia is going to is already doubling their trade with China. And it really is the end of the Soviet Union because Putin has basically played his hand. Odds are something horrible is going to happen there. If not, it'll be the Middle East. And if not, Taiwan. So America's going to have its hands full. Um, and that is a climate of massive uncertainty. So the question I'm going to leave all of you with is this. What are you doing to prepare for what's to come? Because you're going to be selling into, uh, let's, let's hope I'm wrong, but prepare for the worst. A lot of people will be disrupted. Even if it doesn't end up in war, there will be an awful lot of bad actors playing around on the internet upon which we depend. AI, deep fakes, we don't really know the, who's who. We've got all this confusion. Over in the States, you now have the very real probability that the speaker will not endorse the opponent who gets elected when they lose. And that's a tinderbox waiting to happen. And to my mind, we're going through a period of enormous uncertainty and upheaval. After having gone through the pandemic, then other previous worst Great Recession is still fresh in many of our memories. So we've spent a decade or so living high on the hog when money was free, believing that we were capable of selling, whereas in fact, we were lucky and it was about the timing and people bought nice-to-haves. Now they don't. So you better be bloody certain when you show up that your hypothesis is going to capture their attention, because otherwise you're not even going to get a look in. And if you do get a toe in the door, that'll be it, because seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second from the data I've seen. Has your data shown anything different? No. In, in terms of seven out of eight meetings res resulting in... No, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting, because they don't get invited back, because they weren't timely, they weren't relevant, or they weren't valuable. No, I fully agree with that. I totally agree with that number. I, th I think that that's exactly how things are. And we need to, to your point, right, we need to be able to thread that needle very carefully because, and if you're not prepared to do that. Now, the good news on that is that we definitely have a lot of fresh new data points and perspective that help us do that, but we still need to do the work and we need to think through it. We cannot just leave it to the same old, same old bad habits. I think, as you were saying, you know, selling has really not changed that much. I mean, the, the principles of selling have not changed. People buy from people, people they like, people they trust. I think those those factors, you, but, you know, where you go to find those people, where you go to influence those people has drastically changed. How you prepare, personalization has become a very, very big factor and differentiator, right? As you were saying, if you haven't done your research and if you haven't gotten ready for 
the person you're going to talk to, that's that's just stealing from the company, as you were saying, right? But again, the definition of what personalization is is really problematic because what most I, people, I, is they change the name and that's do the same thing. Yeah. That's not personalization is taking weeks and months over time getting to know this person understanding their problems meeting them at their struggling moments on their buying journey being of value offering insight so that as they move from passive into active looking you're really the front runner when they decide you're pretty much in pole position from day one because everyone else is trying to play a game of catch up because they've just turned up on the scene and they're saying Usman can you give me some money please instead of understanding the interconnected nature of their problem because i might be selling them a crm system but the reality is that no one buys a crm because they want a crm i need to understand what the job it is that they're trying to get done by buying the crm is it to help salespeople sell more more often to more people for more money more predictably or is it an audit tool for leadership to have the illusion of control which is what most people uh, buy CRM for, because you don't see salespeople putting good data in. If they thought it was useful, they would. But over 80% of the data in CRM is crap. Now, you're making the most important fundamental decisions about the business, its future, the forecast, on 20% accurate information, which may or may not be complete. That to me smacks of idiocy and um, it's negligent and uh, incompetent. So, Howard, sorry, I know you'll tell me off uh, for uh, kicking people when they're down, but they deserve it. I think you know, th they need to be clearly dragged in front of the ugly mirror and their face uh, shoved in front of it and told, that's you. Because the acts of idiocy that ripple through the organization because people don't think about the consequences. If I sell to Usman today, what's the ripple effect in his organization? Who else is going to be positively or negatively affected? Well, is that a price that they're willing to pay? Is it any wonder half of the pipeline ends up stalled in closed loss, no decision? Over half, 60%. Insane. I think you said two things in there that I need to address. One, CRM is an audit tool. It is not a sales tool. And it is filled with less than 20% accurate information based on which. And yet, yet, every single company, every single sales leader's number one request is to have a CRM solution, right? It's a freaking Excel spreadsheet. It's a distraction. It's a distraction, right? And it does not help you move a deal a single step forward or backwards because of its being in place. Yet, it is the religion of sales today, number one. Number two, you mentioned something about personalization, right? And you mentioned this, that it's tracking the buyer through the journey, identifying their pain points and what they're struggling with, helping them think through things and so on. That's become even much more difficult today because things have moved digital, and not only have they moved digital, they have become virtual. And not only have they become virtual, we have now, as a result of consistently abusing the system, mis mishandling 
the client relationship, we push the buyer away from the seller. So they're spending less time. So we need to rethink that you're absolutely right about the depth. I, I agree with the, your definition of personalization, but here's the interesting thing. In that new revised definition with these, with the virtualization and digitization and you know, lack of time buyers and sellers spent together, we do have tools that can help us uncover and still get us above at a better quality and a clip rate than we would had we been doing it at a, in a physical one-on-one room. We do have it, but yet the focus is, hey, go get that CRM tool. Make sure that pipeline is updated. Our focus and, is and on, focus on the cold new business. Again, cold, ecosystems and partnerships are almost, it's like the um, ginger cousin that you don't really want to spend time with. Um, I mean, it's, it's and no offense to the ginger people, but you get the general gist. The objective here is to get the job done and to do so with the least amount of friction. So we've got to start thinking like engineers, like architects. We have to think about how are people going to use this? What's the outcome that they're looking for? Then we have to think of it as a system. There's inputs and outputs and there's stock. And if the inputs are too fast or the wrong type, we're going to end up with a problem with the stock and then there's a problem with the outputs and so on. So then we have to think about constraints. Well, the buyer is operating in a system with real constraints. Just because you don't want them there doesn't mean that they aren't there. And we as sellers have to learn to navigate all of this. You're not going to do that if you're trying to close them in one quarter or two quarters on a massive strategic deal that is going to have lasting implications for everybody in the business and probably could be either a knighthood or career-ending decision if they get it wrong. That's the difference between selling big-ticket B2B and selling low-ticket transactional stuff in an up economy. Now you have to really be able to sell, which means you have to stop selling, and therein lies the paradox. And so I'm going to leave everyone with this question. How much of the pipeline that you generate do you inadvertently drive into the arms of your competition because of your selfish and self-serving approach? Have a ponder about that and then add that to a spreadsheet on a monthly basis. When the number gets you angry enough, give me a call. (laughs) So, Usman, how can people get hold of you? Best way, I'm on LinkedIn. Usman, U-S-M-A-N, Sheikh, S-H-E-I-K-H. Contact me. I'm very much in touch with a lot of people. Um, Also on X or Twitter, as it was formerly known, Instagram, TikTok. I I, I heard it's now being called an excretion. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So you've got a golden ticket. You can go and whisper in the ear of the idiot Usman, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you whisper that you know he'd have ignored but could have benefited from? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking about it because the guy sent that to me. For some part of my life, I regretted having gone to design school, but now I've you know, rechanged and reoriented. I wish I could have done what I'm doing today a little bit earlier in my life. <laughs> 10, okay. 15 years earlier would have been a lot of fun. Right. Still so, is fun, by the way. But right, okay, okay, okay. Because that, that's not really advising him. So let me ask you this. For him to recognize that opportunity, what would he have to have understood or seen differently? 
Yeah. That understanding people and and then being able to think in terms of stop selling. That's what I would have done. Stop selling and start thinking about how you can actually help them. That's what I would have told. I've spent a lot of time in trying to convince people and maybe overselling. And I would have stayed away from that. And now in hindsight, it's more about building that relationship. It's taking the time. It's adding that value versus trying to be transactional and trying to convince and arm twist them into doing certain things. I think that's a good place to stop. Osman Sheikh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And the fact we didn't do the definitions is entirely my fault, sorry. And if you are struggling, let's say you've been well-trained in the old systems like Medic and Challenger and Sandler, or maybe even you go even further back, you're Xerox trained, or Fox and Hounds if you're a proper old relic or Taz. And it used to work, but it doesn't for some reason. The context has changed, but you haven't quite been able to adapt. In the blurb is a link to my sales aptitude test. It'll take you 10 minutes and I'll give you 30 minutes and we'll brainstorm how you can get around this in the next 30 days. Something that you can break the back of that you can advance. I'm not going to pitch you coaching. If you want to talk about coaching, you're very welcome to do so. I'd love to have that chat but I'm not going to sell it to you. You can buy it. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.